Okay. Well, we are continuing in John chapter 9. I believe people are coming around with trays for your communion um, empty containers. And um, last week we were looking at Jesus healing a blind man. And, and, and as I said, before he, he does that, before he, uh, he restores the man's sight, he reaffirms his, his purpose and, and, and he delivers one of his profound I am statements that we see in the book of John. And I mentioned last week that, that, that time would fail us to unpack everything that is involved in this statement, I am the light. Um, and, uh, and we've heard that so much, and we say it, and we sing it so much, um, and we should, because it's worth celebrating, and it's worth uh, worshiping over and, and, and because of, but, um, but it's good to take time to be reminded of what that means. Uh, we've, we've looked at how, uh, how when Jesus is in Jerusalem at this time, it's the Feast of the Tabernacles, right, and, and how they're... Their, their ceremony during this time was, was to take water from the pool and, and bring it up to the temple and pour it out, right? Um, and and uh, they were celebrating how, how God led them through the wilderness uh, hundreds of years before, uh, how he provided water from the rock, how, how he took care of them. Um, and it's in the midst of that water-pouring ceremony when all the eyes of Jerusalem are, are focused on the temple. They're, they're thinking about God. They're thinking about the promises of God and the promised land and the nourishing quality of water. It's in the midst of that context that Jesus stands up and says, I am the water of life. Uh, drink from me and you'll never thirst again. So he's, he's, he's inviting that claim onto himself to say, I am the one that nourished your ancestors in the wilderness. I am the one that brings you true life. I am the one that will lead you into eternal life, all right? And so he's using a very visual tradition to proclaim truth. And when he says in chapter 9, I am the light, he's doing the same thing. Because another tradition they had uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles, again, they're, they're celebrating how God delivered them through wandering in the wilderness, right? Not only did he provide water from a rock, um, but how would God lead them through the wilderness? So the scripture says it was by a pillar of a cloud by day and a pillar of what by night? Pillar of fire by night, right? And so God, in, God embodies light, and he leads his people through, through surrounding darkness. And so what they would do is they would take these 16 giant bowls and fill them with oil, and they would uh, take these four massive lampstands, and each lampstand would hold four bowls each. Uh, and they would set these up in the court of the women so that everyone could take part in the worship, and they would light these things on fire, um, at night. So as, as it got dark, and if you can imagine, if you had to close your eyes to imagine, that's fine, because um, this is before electricity, so there's, there's no street lights, there's no, there's no headlights from cars, okay? There's, uh, nothing else is lit. You have the stars in the sky, and that's it. And so there's complete darkness, okay? Um, and and as, as night falls, part of their ceremony was to light these massive torches. Um, and as these torches are lit, uh, the people, their eyes are focused on, again, again on, on the temple, and they're singing praises. And the temple, as we know, is elevated. It's, it's, it's on this hill or this mount, and so it's elevated above the city. And, and wherever you were for miles around Jerusalem, it could be pitch black outside, the darkest of night, and your eyes would be drawn to the light emanating from the temple, emanating from the presence of God as a reminder of how he led you through the wilderness, how he led you into the promised land, and as a precursor of things to come. Um, because not only were they celebrating what was, they were celebrating what will be. I want to read briefly from the, the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. In Zechariah chapter 14, starting in verse 6, it says, talking about the day of the Lord, it says, on that day... There shall not be either cold or frost. Some translations say there shall be no more darkness, right? And there shall be continuous day. Again, some translations say this will be a very unique day known only to the Lord. 
Not day and not night, for at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. And what that means is he will be the only one. His name will be the only name. Right? And so it is in looking forward to the fulfillment of this prophecy. And we could read in Revelation also where it says the glory of God is the light of his kingdom. That in eternity, in heaven, we don't need the electricity, right? We don't need the, the clap-on lamps. We don't need the, all of these things. The, the, the glory of God is, is, is what lights reality and what lights everything for us. And so they're having this, it's, it's in the context of that, of that hope, of that promise, it's in the context of this ceremony where they light these bowls of oil on fire that Jesus says, I am the light. All right? So when he's saying these things about himself, I, you know, I, I am water, I am light. I'm, uh, for us, they make for interesting illustrations, and we kind of got to dig into Scripture to see, well, what does that mean? And, and they become kind of trite for us sometimes, and we don't really think about it. But for the people living in Jesus' time, these were very real, very living um, pictures of who Jesus is claiming to be, okay? And so if, um, if the first part of chapter 9, we talked about Jesus says, you know, I have to be about uh, the work of the Father. If the first part of chapter 9 is him saying, okay, my purpose, my goal, the urgency that drives me forward is in revealing God and revealing myself as God, uh, then the second half of the chapter is going to challenge us with the question, what do we do with that revelation? So when Jesus is revealed as the light, and we talked about last week how, you know, um, as the light, he reveals the grace of God, but he also reveals the darkness of our own hearts. Now, sometimes naturally we kind of recoil against light when we've grown accustomed to darkness. It's uncomfortable. It's not something that that we always enjoy, but we're drawn to it still, right? Um, and so he's, he said, you know, my, my, my purpose, my goal is to reveal, to bring truth, to reveal the Father, and to reveal myself as one with the Father. So if that's the first part of chapter 9, then today, um, in the second half, we're going to be dealing with this question, okay, what do we do once revelation has been shown? What do we do with Jesus um, and we're going to be challenged with the question of what is true blindness. Jesus has just healed a blind person, um, and he's going to use that to, 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 to kind of, uh, for, for, his, for his original audience and for us as well, to get us to ask, okay, am I blind? I can come to church, and I can read my Bible, and I can embrace the ideas of religion, and we're going to see the Pharisees did those things, and I can still be blind. So what is true vision? What is true sight? Okay, so we're going to um, start in verse 13 of chapter 9. Um, and just to kind of uh, backtrack a little bit. So again, Jesus has just healed this man who was born blind. That's, that, that's important. Um, and, uh, and as the man has come back from the pool of Siloam where he's washed, everyone has noticed Everyone has seen him. Everyone understands, hey, this is the same guy that's been begging for, for years. This is the same guy that we, we know him. We know his family. We know that he was born blind. And they're coming up to him, and they're asking him, what happened to you? Are, are you really the same person because you're, you're clearly different? You know, uh, what, what's happened to you? Um, and, and I kind of feel bad for this guy. If, 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 if you can imagine, if you can imagine, imagine like, like never having any concept of what it is to see things never having any concept of colors, right? Never having any, like, like you, you kind of understand your face because, you know, it's your face, and you know I've got these things here that don't work that are eyes, and I have this, but, but, but never really being able to, like, see that in someone else, not knowing what a young face or an old face or what the sunlight looks like or what any of this looks like. Like, he's been blind from birth, and instead of being able to bask in, in that new reality for him, he's being bombarded with all these questions. He's being interrogated. He's being, you know, just asked over and over again. So I kind of feel bad for him. Um, but he reaffirms over and over again, I am the, the same guy. It's me. It's me. 
Uh, and so in verse 13, because the people don't know what to do with this reality, they don't know how to make sense of this, they bring him to the religious leaders. And so that's where we're going to start today. In verse 13, um, the people, the Jews, are bringing um, the blind man's case, the formerly blind man's case, to the Pharisees. It says, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day. That's going to be important later. It was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put mud on my eyes, then I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. We're going to pause there. Because, um, because, church, we can be, we, we can face that same risk and that same danger of missing Jesus, okay? Um, so understand what their complaint was. Uh, they weren't saying, uh, this man, Jesus, he can't be from God because he, uh, he denies scripture. Um, this man can't be from God because, because he, he's broken the law written in the old covenant, no, they're saying he can't be from God because he has denied our religious tradition. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say you can't heal on the Sabbath. In fact, um, in the Old Testament, there's evidence of the contrary. As we've been studying on Wednesday nights, the life and the journey of, of, of David and how on the Sabbath he was given bread um, from, uh, from the 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 showbread table that was normally meant for worship, all right, and God honored that choice, and God does take the Sabbath seriously. So I, I do want to make sure we don't minimize the holiness of the Sabbath. God does say, keep the Sabbath day holy, and it's not meant to be a burden for us. It's meant to be um, a, a time of rest. It's meant to be a time where we reaffirm our dependence on God, okay? So he does take it seriously, okay? But Jesus, by healing someone, is actually embracing that and, and bringing rest to someone. And so, again, the Pharisees, their complaint about Jesus isn't he's violating Scripture. It's he's violating religion because they had taken Scripture. And after years and generations and generations of, of adding things to it and adding their comfort levels and their traditions and what brought the Pharisees authority and power, um, God's truth had become mixed with man's truth. And because of that, they were blinded to the reality of the work of God in their midst. Because of that, they were unwilling to accept Jesus for who he says he is. And so when we dismiss church, we got to be careful here. When we dismiss the work of God simply because it doesn't conform to our expectations of what God would do or what God should do, then that's when we are in danger of spiritual blindness. This is what we do sometimes because we're, we're like, okay, I, I know Scripture. I know how God works, okay, and, and, and so God wouldn't do that. And, and, and if you think you know Scripture better than the Pharisees knew Scripture, then you, um, we're all out to lunch. None of us here has dedicated anywhere near the amount of time and effort the Pharisees did in studying and understanding Scripture, and they still missed it, Okay. So, um, we need to check our expectations of God. I hear people say all the time, oh, um, well, God would want me to be happy. Well, maybe. <laughs> I defy you to find that in Scripture. I think God um, uh, wants us to be drawn into relationship with him. I think God wants us to, uh, to, 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 be, to find our identity and who we're created to be in Jesus. And in so doing, I believe we often find happiness. But God's primary goal is not to make us happy, right? Um, or yeah, all kinds of things. And, and I, I don't want to step on too many toes this morning. But you guys can fill in the blanks of what we expect God to do, or the way we think God should work, or the way we think God would work if he were here. If we, if we cling to those traditions over Scripture, then we run the risk of missing Jesus, and we run the risk of being spiritually blind. So some of them are saying, he can't be from God because he violates our religion. He's working on a Sabbath day. Um, and then it says, um, but others said, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And so the other side is basically saying, how could Jesus just be another ordinary man? How can he just be another ordinary person 
when there's so much evidence to the contrary? I mean, like how, how else do you bring healing to a blind man? And we're going to see later that, that this wasn't a common occurrence. Um, the, the man who was healed says later, who's ever heard of the blind receiving sight until Jesus came on? Like we, we kind of take that for granted because Jesus did it so many times because it was a hallmark of his ministry. And we're like, oh, yeah, people were just, you know, giving sight all the time. But before this, it was unheard of. And so the other side of the Pharisees, they're saying, but wait, 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 wait. Let's, let's, let's take a minute here and just stop and, and think. Let's, let's hear the guy out. Let's listen to what he has to say. This is unprecedented. When else has this happened? And so they were divided, what Scripture says. Um, and I want to take a moment to stop here and kind of take, take a small detour because it's important that we understand um, you know, the, the, the Pharisees, not just the Pharisees, the Jews, and, and, and everyone in that time, they were constantly asking Jesus for proof, right? Give us a sign. Show us a sign. Prove to us that you are who you claim to be. And not then and not now has Jesus ever set out to prove that he is God. And it has not been one of his priorities to prove that he is God. In fact, he says the opposite. He says, A wicked and perverse generation demand a sign, and none will be given to them except the sign of Jonah. And he's talking about when he comes back from the dead and he's resurrected after three days. Um, but over and over again, people are demanding from God a sign. And we see this today. Um, if, you, uh, if you listen to, to any, there, there, there are these, you know, um, like, like really popular um, atheist figures or, or, or just skeptics, and they'll say, well, I'll, I would believe if there was proof. If you, you, want, you want me to believe in God, okay, show him to me. Prove to me that he exists. And as believers, we can easily get, get, get caught in that trap of feeling like we have to prove that God exists. Listen, if Jesus didn't feel the need to prove that God exists, I don't think we can do any better job than Jesus did, right? I want to take us to a, a different passage just for, just for a little bit, just to see um, how Jesus responds to this. In Mark chapter 8, I'm going to read several verses, and then I'm going to go back and just kind of point out a few things, because I feel like this passage enhances what we're reading in John 9. So Mark chapter 8 and verse 11. Again, Jesus is struggling with the Pharisees. Again, this is right after he had performed a sign. Um, so, so Jesus will provide evidence. He's, he's not interested in proving who he is. He, uh, he does provide evidence. He's doing these signs. Um, and then Mark 8, he had just fed the 4,000. This was the second time that he had miraculously fed thousands of people. Okay, So this has happened twice now. Um, and then it says, and can you just imagine, uh, in verse 11 of Mark 8, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, asking him for a sign from heaven to test him. Jesus is like, I've just fed thousands of people twice out of thin air, okay? Like, what do you want? I mean, like, if that's not going to, like, what, what, just to show the stubbornness of their hearts. And sometimes the stubbornness of our hearts, because we can look at, at creation around us, and it, it, it boggles my mind. The more we learn about the universe, the more we learn about how things work, the more intricately designed and wired we discover that we are. We're not just this mass of cells that just kind of happens to function together. Um, the more we learn about those things, the more we hear people double down on their, on their resistance to, to faith. They'll, they'll say, yes, we're seeing how, how amazing the human body is, um, but that all came about by chance. How amazing the cosmos and the universe function. Uh, clearly, that was just random happenstance, you know, just the stubbornness of humanity's heart. Um, and so it's the same story here. Um, they, they've been seeing the signs of Jesus feeding people and healing people, and still they demand more. So it says the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, asking him for a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. I think sometimes we can connect with that, right? It's like, Jesus, I feel you there. <laughs> but sometimes we got to be careful because I think sometimes he sighs deeply in his spirit over us, right? Um. Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them 
and getting into the, the boat, he went across to the other side. So again, he, he has had, Jesus had every opportunity. If, if that was his goal, if that was how God wanted to reveal himself, he had every opportunity to prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that he is who he says he is. He could have called down fire from heaven. He could have said, okay, what do you want me to do? Bring back more manna. I'll bring back more manna. Whatever you want, I can make that happen. Jesus had those opportunities, and he chose not to. Scripture tells us, that it is impossible to please God without faith, right? That faith is, is how we receive the promises of God. It is by faith. If we read the book of Hebrews, it tells us that what faith is, is the evidence of things unseen. So God is pleased when we believe in him, not because he has to prove himself, but because we, by faith, take the signs that he's given us for what they are. And you might ask, well, why is that? Why wouldn't God want to just prove himself? How much, how much love in a relationship can there be if you don't have a choice? You know, so if God parts the clouds, peeks down from wherever heaven is, and says, okay, I'm here, I'm real. All of creation, look at me, here I am. You want proof, here I am. Okay, at that point, I mean, I guess you do kind of have a choice. You could, just, you could still choose not to. And some people still would. But in reality, what choice would you have at that point other than to, to affirm, okay, I have no choice now but to believe God exists. Darn it, now you know, I'm wrong. Okay, I guess I'll worship God. Is that what God wants? Um, is that what you want in your relationship? Do you, do you want someone to be with you because they don't have a choice? Um, or do you want someone to be with you and to believe that you love them, not because you're always having to prove your love, but because they love you enough to trust you, right? So Jesus doesn't want people to, to believe in him because they have no choice. Faith is so valuable to God for that reason. So anyway, um, so Jesus has this interaction with the Pharisees. And then in Mark eight fourteen, it says, Now the disciples had forgotten to bring any bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. Um, and for the disciples, that, that kind of threw them for a loop. It says, they said to one another, it is because we have no bread. And so, you know, Jesus just had this frustrating interaction with the Pharisees, and they're in the boat, and the disciples, and who knows what's going through their minds half the time. You know, I don't think they even knew half the time. Um, and Jesus just kind of randomly says, oh, be careful about the yeast of the Pharisees. Um, and they're like, oh, wait a minute. He's upset because we didn't bring bread. Oh, no, what have we done? They're, they're so focused on the tangible. They're, they're so focused on the physical. Um, and it says in verse 17, And becoming aware of it, Jesus said to them, Why are you talking about having no bread? I think the disciples would have been like, Well, you brought up the bread, Jesus. You said the yeast. Um, Do you still not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes and fail to see? I don't, you know, we can read this, and, and, and I think, um, I, I wish we could hear this. I wish we could hear the tone and the inflection that Jesus had when he said these words. I don't hear these words from Jesus to his disciples in like a finger-pointing way. Like, what's wrong with you? Get it together, you know. Um, I think it's more paternal. I think it's lovingly paternal, like, like come on, guys, we got to figure this out. Okay, uh, why, why, you, you, should, you should have this figured out by now. You've been walking with me for a while. Um, do you have eyes and fail to see? Do you have ears and fail to hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you collect? They said to him, 12. And seven for the 4,000. So again, he did that miracle twice. How many baskets full of broken pieces did, did, did you collect? And they said to him, seven. Then he said to them, do you not yet understand? Um, and then um, in verse 22, he heals another blind person. And I have, to, I have to amend a statement I made last week. Last week I said Jesus doesn't always heal the same way twice, which is still true. Um, he heals in a very similar way in this, in this version, although he, he doesn't use the dirt. It says they came to, uh, to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village, and we had put saliva on his eyes, so he just, you know, he didn't bother making mud. He just, I think some translations literally say he spit in the man's eyes. 
uh, and laid his hands on him, he asked him, can you see anything? This is interesting. Um, this is the first, uh, and, and to, to my recollection, the only miracle that I'm, I can think of where the healing was gradual, where it didn't happen right away. So he says, can you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. So it's like Jesus, you know, he rubs saliva in the guy's eyes, and, and he says, can you see yet? And the guy's like, I can kind of see, but I, I'm not sure what I'm looking at, you know. And Jesus, like, rubs his eyes again, and then sight is fully restored. Then he sent him away to his home, saying, do not even go into the village. So there's a reason why this miracle is placed right after this interaction with his disciples and the Pharisees, and there's, a, and there's a reason why that scripture is important to our scripture in John 9. The yeast of the Pharisees, what's he talking about there? The disciples didn't get it at first. But when spiritual pride wells up within us, when spiritual pride or pride of any kind wells up within us, where we begin to think that we know how things ought to look, and we know how things ought to be. And again, we know how God should or shouldn't work. And then when we see the work of God and it doesn't match to what we think it should be, then that pride says, nope, that's not for me. Jesus says that pride can become like leaven. And a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It takes just a little bit of yeast. If you've ever done one of those like Amish friendship bread things, you know, um, don't give our family any more of those, please, because those things, they never go away, and they just sit in your fridge forever um, because they keep growing and growing and growing. That's what they're intended to do. Um, and Jesus says pride, this spiritual pride can be like that. It will start small, and if you're not careful, it will, it will consume all of you. It will consume your heart. It will consume your faith. It will consume your ability to worship God. It will consume your ability to even be aware of God's presence in your midst because you're so focused on what you think that you're going to miss where God works. So Jesus says, be careful. This is what the Pharisees have had happen to them. They're, they're so well studied. They're so well learned. They're so well respected, and their pride has now blinded them. The truth, And so I think that's why we have this miracle of Jesus restoring sight right after the blindness of the Pharisees is made evident. And the disciples' struggle is, is a little bit different. They're not struggling with pride. They can't see. They're blinded because they just don't understand because they're still focused on the tangible. Jesus is talking about spiritual things. They think he's talking about physical bread. And so they're, they're equally blind, albeit for a different reason. And so sometimes... Healing and opening our eyes is a process. Sometimes the vision doesn't come right away. Sometimes it takes time. And by the grace and the loving kindness of Jesus, he leads us in that process of healing. So I wanted to take a detour there in Mark chapter 8 just to kind of bring some context and some commentary to what we're reading about in John chapter 9. Let's go back to our main passage in John chapter 9. Um, and this is, what, this is the same struggle that Jesus is dealing with. Again, these Pharisees, they're divided. They're saying, um, this man can't be from God. He violates the Sabbath. Some are saying, how can he not be from God? He's doing these signs. And then we're going to start again in verse 18. I'm sorry, verse 17. So they bring in the blind man, and they say, so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And he said, he is a prophet. And again, uh, we are invited to put ourselves in the healed man's position, okay? Because if Jesus has truly healed us, all right, if we're here and, and, and we claim spiritual sight, right, and we claim we're no longer spiritually blind, if our eyes have truly been opened so that we see, then again, people ought to notice that we're different. They ought to notice that there's something different about how we live and how we love and we will have that same opportunity, Lord willing, to answer that same question, what do you say about him? Okay? The world doesn't need to know more about religion, more about church. They've made up their minds pretty well about those things. Right? Um, we're going to be called on to, ask, to answer this question, what do you say about Jesus? 
Okay, how is Jesus different from those things? If he's so great, if he's so worth worshiping, if he's truly healed us and changed us, then what do we have to say about him? And what they do is, in verse 18, it says, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. And so their skepticism is so intense that they're even denying the man's past. They're saying, oh, you weren't really blind. Maybe you've been, isn't that crazy? Like everyone recognizes this is the same guy who's been born blind, has been, you know, begging for, for, for years. He's an adult now. Okay, it's been at least a couple decades. And in, their, in the hardness of their hearts, they're saying, oh, you, you were never blind to begin with. You were just acting or maybe you just had something in your eye. Who knows? Like, like when, 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 when your pride is so intense that, 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 that you resist the work of God and you begin to, to rationalize and justify. And I've had this said to me, not in these words, but when I give testimony of what God has done in my life, because I know Jonathan without Jesus, and it's not pretty. And when you know you without Jesus, and you know how different you are, then your testimony is made all the more powerful because of that. But if you don't know, then someone can easily come, to, come alongside and say, oh, well, you, you only believe that because your parents taught you that, because you were raised that way, because, you know, it's just what's expected of you. Or, or you only overcame those challenges because there, you know, there, 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 there is goodness in you or, or you have the power in yourself to overcome these things. I've, I've been told that before. And I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> Now, I know me, and if it were up to me, my life would be a mess. My life is still a mess sometimes, but it would be even more of a mess. Uh, I know what Jesus has done in my life. You cannot tell me that I am where I am today uh, apart from the work of my Savior. But this is what the people are trying to do. They're trying to tell him, you were never blind to begin with. And it says, um, and so they called his parents. It says, uh, um, they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not, we do not know how it is that now he sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone, so this is a lot of the people who are going to be the most antagonistic towards the gospel, who are going to give you the, the hardest time about your testimony, are people who have already made up their minds. You know? um, and it says, um, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And so we need, to, we need to, again, remove ourselves from our context and put ourselves in their cultural context to understand how big of a threat that was. Because um, we might think, so they are refusing to come to their son's defense because they're afraid of being kicked out of church. Well, no. Uh, today, if you get kicked out of, which I'm not sure if that even happens anymore today, but if, if, if something were to happen and, and, and we were to be like, you can't worship here anymore, um, okay, I'll go to the church down the street and they'll be more than happy to have me, right? Uh, we, we, we live in this like, consumer-centric culture where it's like, I, can, I have my, my pick. I can go wherever I want to, and any church is going to be super excited to welcome me in. It doesn't really matter, okay? So for us, it's like, well, what's the big deal? But for them, we need to remember that their entire concept of, of, of the freedom and ability to worship corporately revolved around the approval and the acceptance of their religious leaders. So if the synagogue, if the Pharisees say, you're excommunicated, you're kicked out of the synagogue, that means they can't go to temple worship. It means they are not allowed to come and offer sacrifices, which still in their old covenant mindset means restitution for their sins and fellowship with God. And the presence of God was thought to reside in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. And so if you're excommunicated from that, you are effectively cut off from not just a community of worshipers and believers, but from God. Okay? Whether or not that was true, it didn't matter in their mindset. That's what it meant. So we can understand why his parents were so afraid 
to say anything in defense of their son. And the emphasis of their words is always like, if you read it, it says, well, he knows. Ask him. Don't involve us. We weren't there. Uh, we're not to blame. And we can also understand a little bit because, again, that stigma of being born blind meant that either they or their son was a bad enough sinner that God punished him by making him born blind. So they're trying to remove themselves from, from being associated with that. Okay? Um, and so it says uh, in verse 24, So the second time they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now, when they say give glory to God, they're not really calling on the man to worship. This was, this was kind of like, um, like if you go to court today, and, you know, I think today, I've not been to court, so I don't know. Um, but I think uh, you still put your hand in the Bible, right? And you, you swear, you know, if I tell, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth. And all. Is that a real or is that just in the movies? That's real. That's real. <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, uh, okay, yeah, so... <laughs> I'll let you. Anyways, um, so, so when you go to a courthouse today and you do that, like the judge and the court, they're not, they're not, they don't really care. Like you, you put your hand in the Bible. I mean, um, they're not saying worship God. This is just a way of kind of scaring you into telling the truth. All right. It's, it's, you're, you're invoking truth. And so when they say um, give glory to God, it sounds like, oh, they really do want to glorify God. No, no, no. They're just saying, uh, they're basically saying, swear to God. And, and if you're lying, God's going to strike you down, right? Um, so they're saying, give glory to God. Um, um, we know that this man is a sinner. Again, they've already made up their minds. Verse 25, he answered, I do not know whether he's a sinner. Again, he's being honest. His, his vulnerability here and the power of his words. Um, all, the only thing he knows about Jesus he doesn't know what he looks like. He barely knows what he sounds like. All he knows is what he says here. Um, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Or one thing I do know, I, was one, I once was blind, and now I see. Um, the whole passage, I feel like, pivots around that testimony. And guys, we can get so caught up um, and, and I do this. We can get so caught up in trying to have answers for everything, trying to explain everything, trying to make sure that, that, that we have everything ready to go before we share our faith. Lord, you can't use me. I'm not educated enough. I don't know enough. I haven't been a, a believer long enough. This man's barely been a believer for a day, okay? But he knows what Jesus has done in his life enough to be able to say, I, I was one way before and now I'm different. And you can't deny that about me. And the only thing I know that has caused that change is Jesus. And you can say whatever you want about him. And, and I don't have all the answers to those questions. And, but, but I know he's changed my life. And you can't rob, like, your testimony cannot be robbed of that power. It doesn't matter how hard people come after us. Doesn't matter how, how how difficult the questions are, okay? When Jesus has changed your life and you know it, there is power in that truth. There is power in that testimony. And it's okay to tell people what you don't know. It's okay to say, I don't know the answer to that, as long as you follow up with what you do know about Jesus. Okay? Um they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? So now they're trying to get like the step-by-step instructions. All right, how, can, how can we do this now? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? And then he gets a little cheeky. He's like, do you also want to become his disciples? I think he knows that's not the case. You know, I think he's just trying to like, I think he's getting frustrated, and I would too. Um, then they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. That's, that, that is such, um, like, the, the irony of that claim is lost on them when they say, we are disciples of Moses. Moses was and still is a picture of the law, right? And so in their minds, like, we follow the law. We're disciples 
of Moses. Never mind that had Moses been alive, he probably would have been a disciple, and he definitely would have been a disciple of Jesus. We know that from the, the account in, in Luke where Jesus is transfigured on the mountaintop, and who appears next to him? Elijah and Moses, right? And so it's funny that they're saying, well, we follow Moses. And Moses is like, well, I follow Jesus, so, um, uh, so you're wrong. Um, but, but we have this sometimes. We, we, we can easily slip into that same mindset in our church culture where, where, where uh, our, our claim to, to, to authority, our claim to authenticity is we say, well, we follow these rules. We follow these traditions. And sometimes Jesus is working and again, our response is the same. Well, we are disciples of, of this denomination or this movement or this way of doing things. And no, 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 no. We're disciples of Jesus. And where Jesus moves, we follow. The main answer here is an astonishing thing. Again, he's, he's, he's turning the tables on them. He, I think he's, he's, he's over it. He's done. Here's an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. We just need to kind of clarify that statement a little bit because we, we know that God does, as his grace and as his loving kindness directs him, we know he does listen to sinners, right? If not, we'd all be hopeless, right? So the man here isn't saying God doesn't listen to sinners, period. But he's just experienced healing. He's just experienced a miraculous healing. And what he's saying is um, if... If Jesus wasn't of God, then why would God listen to him and, and heal me? If Jesus was as bad as you say he is, how is it that my eyes are opened? God would not have listened to him. Okay, so um, God does listen to sinners, thankfully. Um, uh, but, but he works through people who are in submission to his authority. Um, Verse 32, never since the world began, this is an interesting claim, never, or uh, I think some translations say nobody has ever heard of, um, has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind? Um, Opening the eyes of the blind was a key hallmark of Jesus' ministry. Uh, We read in Isaiah chapter 35, you guys don't have to turn there, but in Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 through 8. And again, it's just prophesying about the Messiah. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. For waters shall break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. Um, the haunt of jackals shall become a swamp. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there. And it shall be called the Holy Way. I'm going to stop there. Um, Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So this passage in Isaiah is looking towards Messiah. It's looking forward to Jesus. He is the Holy Way. He is the only way. Um, And it's a hallmark of his ministry. And it's interesting that the blind man said, the formerly blind man says, no one's ever heard of this happening. This has never been done before. Um, uh, so he is unfamiliar with the other miracles of Jesus, it seems, which makes it all the more remarkable that he had the faith that he had. Because it's not like he was, again, we, we keep getting the impression that he doesn't know much about Jesus. And so, the pre, so in last week, when we looked at the early part of chapter 9, and so for this blind man, a complete stranger comes up to him and spreads mud in his eyes, and the faith of, that, of the blind man to still go anyway and wash and follow Jesus' instructions is made all the more uh, radical by the fact that he's not even familiar with Jesus' other miracles. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and you are trying to teach us, and they drove him out. Um, And so he is excommunicated from worship. He's excommunicated, not not from real worship, but from their version of it. and another irony, uh, they are, they've shown, the, the Pharisees have shown themselves willingness to deny the man's physical blindness, and then they accuse him of spiritual blindness. They say, um, you were born entirely in sins, and you're trying to teach us? Like the arrogance. They're like, who, who are you to tell us anything? Who are you to try and teach us? Do you know who we are? You know, you're, you're just a sinner. 
Um, you, you weren't physically blind for real, but you're spiritually blind, and the Pharisees are wrong on both counts, right? Um, and so verse 35, as we bring this passage to a close, we see the superiority and the sufficiency and the glory of Jesus and how he is superior to all the things that we might otherwise be tempted to hold on to. In verse 35, after the man is tossed out, after this whole ordeal, Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he found him, let me stop there. That means that Jesus hears about the man being cast out, and Jesus goes and looks for him. Because the scripture says, when Jesus found him. So Jesus seeks after the one that religion rejects. There is power in that. He wasn't interested in providing just a physical healing. Jesus could have said, well, I changed his life. I gave him physical sight. He's good. Um, Jesus sought him again after that um, in the moment of crisis, in a moment where, um, where maybe the, I mean, I'm sure the poor guy is confused, you know. He's like, all this has happened, and we don't know how long this process. Maybe it's a couple of days, but, but not very long. And Jesus reaches out and seeks him out, and it says, um, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe him. Again, the healed man doesn't even recognize because he's never seen them before. Um, Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. So I know last week it kind of went on like a little mini tangent about the word journey. And if you like to use that word, I apologize. But, um, uh, but this man's journey of faith is, is a model for us. Okay? It's kind of a microcosm of what we experience in our walk with the Lord. He encounters Jesus in a powerful way, and he's changed by him, right? Hopefully we encounter Jesus in a very powerful and meaningful way, and, and he gets our attention, and our lives are changed by him. And then the man goes through this crucible. He goes through this massive trial. His faith is challenged. His testimony is undermined. He is attacked. And in that whole trial, his faith is actually refined and made stronger. And then because he's no longer a slave to stigmas and he's no longer a slave to religion or tradition or to sin, then he can see Jesus clearly. And that confession leads him to worship. Sometimes our faith doesn't lead us to sincere worship or to like heartfelt, deep felt worship um, because it hasn't been challenged enough. Spiritual sight comes at a cost. Having your eyes opened um, comes at a cost, and it costs this man a lot. Um, but when we endure that cost and we see Jesus all the more clearly at the end of our, each and every trial, then our worship of him becomes even more all-consuming. And then there's this last part here. Jesus says, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see and those who do see may become blind. That's an interesting thing he says. I came to divide. And we often think of Jesus as being this, this like, cuddly, you know, father, grandfather figure. He just wants to make everyone happy and bring us all together. Okay, but Jesus' claims about himself are different. He says, I came to bring a sword. I came to divide, and everywhere the name of Jesus is proclaimed, people make a choice. A line is drawn in the sand, and you're, you're either with him or you're against him. Even the Pharisees were divided. Even the Jews were divided. In some ways, at sometimes his own disciples were divided. And so Jesus says, um, I, came to bring, I came to bring judgment so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. The Pharisees, some of them are, 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 are kind of like you know, stalking him. They're, they're around. They hear some of this. It says in verse 40, Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. So this interesting thing. If you were blind... Um, then, uh, then you wouldn't have sin. Then, then you, you, you wouldn't be guilty. But now that you say that you see, now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. Um, I've spoken with many people throughout, throughout the years 
uh, you know, in, in different situations, sometimes trying to share the gospel or sometimes just, just in casual conversation. And if you bring up the Bible and, uh, and maybe you've had someone say this to you, oh, I've, I've read all that, you know. I, I can remember vividly in my mind, um, we were with the youth group at Calvary Gwinnett and we were in downtown Atlanta and we were, you know, just handing out these, um, um, like, these packets full of, like, toothbrushes and soap and things. And, and, and we were, you know, just sharing the gospel with people. And I was talking to this one guy, and he was like, yeah, I've, I've read all the Bible. I've read it front to back. And I was like, really? Because I'm not sure I've read, like, everything in the Bible, you know. Um, but there is that same, it doesn't matter your, your place, your state in life. There can be that same spiritual pride that says, oh, I see. I'm not one of the blind ones. Um, I've, I've read all that. I get it. Okay. Um, and still miss Jesus. And so what Jesus is saying here is you claim to see. And because you claim to see, because you don't have the humility to accept healing, because you don't have the humility to admit your brokenness and to admit your own blindness, then your guilt remains. And so, church, we, um, uh, we, we should, and, and, and we can study Scripture front to back forever, and we should be doing those things and pursuing the Holy Spirit and pursuing Jesus, but do so with humility. Do so with an understanding that at any moment Jesus can, can interrupt our lives reveals something new and amazing. And if we're not ready for it, if we're too busy clinging to our traditions, clinging to our comfort zones, that we could miss him. And we could continue in life spiritually blinded by our own pride, by our own uh, comfort zones. Um, Jesus satisfies what religion, what culture, and what politics leave lacking. All those things are going to leave you lacking in some way. Jesus satisfies everything fully. He is superior to each of those in every way. Uh, But in blindness, we can cling to those things before we cling to Jesus. And if that is our state, we will completely miss him. Um, And so the question that we have to wrestle with this morning is, which one are we? Are we spiritually blind, or have we received and accepted the revelation of who Jesus is? Let us pray this morning for eyes to see Jesus for who he is, and the humility to reject the darkness that pride brings. Let's pray. Father, there's so much here. There is so much in your word, uh, and it can be overwhelming at times, Lord. And uh, Lord, thank you that, that you bring it to life for us. Thank you that your word isn't a dead book it is alive and it is full of hope and promise and power for what we face today. Uh, Lord, I pray, I pray that your spirit would bring clarity into these things, um, that we wouldn't be willingly blind, that we wouldn't close our eyes because we're too inconvenienced or too afraid, maybe, uh, to see you for who you are. Lord, would you continue the revelation process. Would you continue to be that light in our hearts? Reveal more and more of yourself, of your goodness, of your grace, of your love, and, and the, the darkness within our own hearts that you, you are seeking to, to drive out and redeem. Uh, Father, would you bring glory to yourself in all these things we ask in Christ's name. Amen.